Good evening, everybody. I'm not the person you've come to hear, but I am going to introduce her in a minute. I want to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land, the Gadigal people, and to welcome you all to this Sydney Ideas Lecture. The format this evening will be uh, Vanessa's lecture, after which we'll uh, have some question time. And just to note that the whole event is being recorded for the ABC's Big Ideas uh, program. So I think your questions will end up on that as well. But don't let that hold you back. So tax havens, well, it's hard not to notice them at this historical moment. As globalisation, whatever that means, comes under ever closer scrutiny as the determinant of all our fates. Uh, I think, you know, now it's a few years already, but Thomas Piketty, the French economist's uh, uh, extensive study, Capital, capital I keep wanting to call it Capital, but in fact Capital, um, made tax havens, I think, uh, returned them to the scene and made them a crucial focus of his critique of uh, contemporary globalisation. And the focus of his cure, the dismantling of those tax havens. And, of course, with the recent Panama Papers expose, they've remained among our most favoured news topics, although not always in ways we might expect. And I noticed a few days ago that among the proposals for London's post-Brexit future is, in fact, London as a tax haven. Excellent. Uh, nor might we expect that an historian who otherwise has not made economics their subject would become one of the few to consider tax havens as a topic that requires its own new history. And I'm not sure if uh, Professor Vanessa Ogle had insider knowledge about how the tax haven story would break this year, but her prescience suggests her instinctive nose for the history we need. At a time when capitalism is itself like globalisation, increasingly under the historical microscope, in ways that probe the causal nexus of our contemporary world, tax havens are crucial subject matter leading us in search of both the numbers to crunch and a deeper understanding of the kinds of systems and cultural thinking that has helped create them and might be used to question them. I can't wait to hear what Vanessa has found out and what she wants to do with her knowledge. Vanessa Ogle is Julie and Martin Franklin Assistant Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. She is visiting the University of Sydney as the Kathleen Fitzpatrick Visiting Fellow to the Laureate Research Program in International History. And we are, in fact, uh, using her lecture to launch another two days of events where uh, cultural, political and social historians tackle economic history. Vanessa teaches and writes about the history of modern Europe from an international and global perspective. And prior to joining Penn's History Department in 2011, the same year that Piketty published Capital... Uh, she completed a doctorate at Harvard and has received language and thematic training in both modern Western European and Middle Eastern history. In 2013, she was a member at the Institute for Advanced Study, the School of Social Science at Princeton, and uh, uh, Professor Ogle recently received the International Research Award for 2016 in Global History, which uh, um, my program co-administers with Basel and Heidelberg. And a current book project on tax havens, offshore money markets and the shadow political economy is supported by a research grant from the Institute for New Economic Thinking, as well as fellowships from the American Council for Learned Societies and the National Endowment for Humanities. And her I have to say, I mean, it's worth thinking about her first book, which has won a number of awards. 
The Global Transformation of Time, 1870 to 1950, and uh, Vanessa will be speaking about that project on Monday in the History Department, if any of you are interested. In that book, she follows European and American attempts to make clock times, calendars, and social time more uniform, from international conferences to Germany and France, Britain, the British Empire, German colonies, Latin America, British India, late Ottoman Beirut, scholars of Islam and Eastern Mediterranean, and eventually to the League of Nations. And her newest project is Archipelago Capitalism, the other international political economy, 1870s to 1980s, and it explores the formation of a distinctly non-territorial and non-national economic and legal order that was put in place in the post-war decades and that would come to form the basis for today's global economy as it emerged from the 1970s and 1980s. And we're about to get an early insight into what ends up in those pages in tonight's talk. Tax havens, what can be done, evidence from a century of history. And I'd really warmly like to welcome Professor Ogle to the University of Sydney. Yes, thank you for the very generous introduction. Um, and I would like to thank... Uh, Professor Sluga and uh, the Laureate Research Program in International History for hosting me, uh, obviously the University of Sydney, uh, and also the lecture series, um, Sydney Ideas. It's great to be here. Um, I'm back here, actually, after uh, a first um, uh, trip last year, and I hope uh, I'll enjoy it um, as much as I did uh, last time. Um, I'm kind of getting over a cold, so uh, I hope the mic uh, projects uh, properly. If you can't hear me, let me know. Okay, so one reason why we should care or uh, uh, be concerned about tax havens is something that uh, was already mentioned, uh, the sort of matter of inequality. Uh, and in fact, uh, Gabriel Zuckman, who is a, a young economist at the University of Berkeley, um, has recently, in a book uh, titled The Hidden Wealth of Nations, provided a few figures on tax havens and inequality, and they're quite striking. So when it comes to uh, tax evasion by individuals, not corporations, but individuals, he estimates that um, roughly $7.6 trillion, uh, and that amounts to 8% uh, of the global wealth of households is held uh, in tax havens currently. That is more than what the poorer half of the world's population owns uh, in total. Tax havens, as he um, rightly points out, mostly cater towards uh, the very wealthy. And by shielding wealth from taxes, they make it easier for the rich to stay rich as Zuckman argues, and he also says, uh, and I think he has a point there, implicitly um, they also mean, tax havens also mean that the rest of us uh, have to pay more taxes uh, in order to make up for lost uh, revenue. Corporate tax evasion is another um, uh, uh, matter that is uh, tied to the same uh, problematics, tied to tax havens. Um, it is even more difficult to quantify than uh, individual tax evasion, but Zuckman also um, uh, makes a few estimates here. Uh, and um, according to, uh, again, what he um, uh, writes in The Hidden Wealth of Nations, uh, it is estimated that 55% of the profits of U.S. multinationals uh, currently are parked in tax havens, and that in consequence, uh, the U.S. loses uh, roughly $130 billion in revenue annually due to such uh, uh, practices. 
maybe you don't uh, care about inequality, fair enough, but maybe you care then still about the global financial system not collapsing. And if that's the case, then uh, tax havens should also concern you. Tax havens insert instability and risk into the financial system by hosting important industries, uh, but subjecting them to very little control and oversight. Uh, again, the numbers are um, difficult to come by, but it is estimated that uh, in the year 2006, um, the big four Caribbean islands, um, some about which I'm going to talk uh, today, the Cayman Islands, uh, Bermuda, the British Virgin Islands, <coughs> and the Bahamas, among them were hosting roughly two, 52% of the world's hedge funds. Tax havens also are important uh, vehicles for distributing uh, foreign direct investment uh, and generally sort of um, channeling, channeling uh, capital flows uh, to uh, different uh, destinations around the world. And at least in the United States, there has been, as also uh, was pointed out already, recently kind of more pronounced criticism, um, especially since uh, 2008, Both of the super-rich who can afford um, to use uh, uh, Cayman Island arrangements um, to reduce their the tax liabilities and of multinational corporations like Microsoft, uh, Apple, Google, Walmart, Starbucks, and Amazon, to name a few, uh, who are all basically setting up subsidiaries in low-tax uh, or lower-tax countries to shift profits there to be taxed uh, uh, in these locations instead of uh, the United States. Uh, or corporations um, who actually take it one step further and not just move their profits, but who uh, basically reincorporate abroad um, with the purpose also of reducing um, their tax uh, liabilities to the U.S. And I'm afraid you would have to tell me whether um, something similar has been happening here uh, in, in Australia. Some similar uh, cr critique has been emerging um, here as well. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know enough about that. Okay, so when the tax havens um, become so widespread, when did they emerge, uh, and um, uh, what uh, does that mean? Obviously, people have always tried uh, to avoid paying taxes. Just think of, for instance, the long history of smuggling as one way of um, <clears throat> avoiding uh, to pay tariffs, just a different kind of tax uh, if you want. Um, but the history of tax havens... Um, is tied to the emergence of the modern revenue-raising uh, state. And in fact, most countries in the North Atlantic world introduced mass income taxes in the first decades of the 20th century, and then even more expensively so, uh, during and immediately after the First World War. And accordingly, the first tax havens or areas uh, of countries that became tax havens appeared in the late 19th century, Uh, in certain Swiss cantons um, in Delaware, both geared towards facilitating cheap and easy registration uh, of corporations. Uh, the next uh, and more important period uh, uh, and development then comes um, uh, immediately after the First World War. Uh, and in the interwar years, we see Liechtenstein in 1926 and 1928 and Luxembourg in 1929 pass laws that uh, created tax havens uh, in these countries, made these uh, countries into tax havens. Uh, and the British Channel Islands uh, and the Bahamas, in fact, also see kind of an early inflow uh, of trust uh, and banking business uh, in this period. 
In these interwar years, and especially immediately after World War I, uh, it was initially, above all, economic uh, instability and um, uh, sort of the, the, the crises resulting from war and reparations, inflation, and what was referred to as flight of capital that spurred uh, the emergence of these uh, European tax havens. Often these initial uh, tax havens were countries that, for various reasons, had historically not levied any taxes at all, so there were no tax territories. And in fact, later, territories that made themselves into tax havens uh, but had already um, established uh, tax systems uh, therefore had to kind of um, embark on a different path to becoming a tax haven. And what they did was... um, they uh, sort of created special legal entities, uh, often sort of, uh, summarily referred to as international business companies um, that were exempt from taxation as long as they did not carry out business in the territory uh, itself and as long as they were owned by uh, non-residents uh, of said territory. So different paths um, towards uh, becoming a tax haven Uh, often um, sort of predetermined by a historical trajectory that a territory had taken. The next phase in the history of tax havens lasted from roughly 1945 to the mid-1970s and saw the greatest expansion and also the greatest uh, diversification of havens. These developments in this period in turn laid the groundwork for the largest increase uh, of tax haven business in terms of volume during a third phase that roughly lasts from the mid-1970s to the mid-1990s. And in the talk today, I will focus mainly on uh, the second period from roughly um, 1945 to the mid-1970s. It was a time when tax havens became not only more geographically widespread, as I will uh, uh, point out in a minute, but also uh, became more multidimensional in that they took on different functions that made them and continued to make them uh, 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 central and important to the functioning of the world economy, uh, much more central than they would be if they were just, if you want, uh, tax havens. It's also in these years that a sophisticated avoidance industry really emerged kind of around tax havens, as I will show, meaning to get rid of tax havens today, one now has to deal uh, with a well-oiled machinery of publicity, of legal accounting uh, and banking advice, in addition to these territories themselves. The period finally illustrates uh, some of the patterns that clearly are there uh, for setting up uh, and trying also to fight back against tax havens and therefore sort of uh, potentially offers up um, some suggestions as uh, to um, what uh, can be done about these tax havens if one is so inclined. So up here on the slide, if I can get the pointer to work, um, you see it's... This is a map, obviously, of um, uh, tax havens. It's not easy to find um, sort of the, the, the best map out there simply because uh, there are different definitions as to what constitutes a tax haven. Obviously, um, that differs also as to when you look in time. But uh, this is a more recent attempt um, to, uh, to list some of the more important locations. And what you see here, and the reason why I'm uh, putting this up here on the slide, is... Uh, Uh, sort of a geographic uh, uh, division of labor, in addition to what I mentioned, the functional specialization. So uh, the uh, Caribbean tax havens listed here and and here on the map um, very sort of clearly and early on 
catered uh, to the United States uh, and later to Latin America, uh, and sort of um, there was a connection uh, to to Britain for sort of historical um, colonial imperial reasons, but uh, mainly um, um, there was a strong connection to uh, uh, the mainland United States. Obviously, the European uh, tax havens looked much more towards Europe. Uh, and then some of the more recent um, uh, uh, havens in, in, in the Pacific area uh, and in Asia um, basically uh, um, serve uh, Asia. This is, this is not sort of an absolute statement. Um, uh, Europeans make use of Cayman Island accounts um, uh, as much as they make use uh, of Liechtenstein or Luxembourg uh, entities. But still, there is a geographical diversification and specialization um, that you can see. The expansion of tax havens in this uh, second period that I'll focus on um, coincided with the end of empires and with decolonization, and that is not a coincidence. Uh, and I'm happy to t- sort of talk more about that in the Q&A, but it might be something that is of particular interest uh, to the historians and specialists amongst you. So I'll see if I have time to get to that. Um, but because of this link with empire and decolonization, it can sometimes seem as if the story were kind of a primarily British uh, story. Uh, and even though Britain and its empire are very central to the expansion of havens, as you will hear, uh, it is also very much an American story. It is a German story, and, is a, and it is a French story. Uh, uh, and if you have questions uh, about that, I'm also happy to address those um, in the Q&A. Okay, so what are the different uh, roles that tax havens uh, take on, in addition to just, if you want, um, being uh, tax havens? Um, So up here on the slide, uh, you see um, the image of the notorious uh, Ugland House uh, in Georgetown in the Grand Caymans, um, which is uh, the address at which over uh, uh, 18,000 companies uh, are registered. And um, this Ugland House was made famous uh, in 2008 when President, or uh, 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 then aspiring to be President uh, uh, Obama in his campaign um, mentioned uh, it as a kind of expression and as a symbol for uh, the excesses uh, of tax havenry that he uh, criticized in this case. Uh, So the Caymans um, are both a center for company registration, um, just generally, uh, as uh, embodied um, in this uh, building. But they're also, um, as I already briefly touched upon, an important center of the hedge fund industry. Uh, uh, And even though they may specialize perhaps more in hedge funds, uh, they also do other things. The Bahamas um, are uh, the global center of the so-called captive insurance industry, which is a special form of insurance. Uh, But, of course, it also um, uh, hosts companies uh, and um, uh, offers sort of other uh, uh, services uh, as well. So despite such specializations, um, uh, tax havens have taken on multiple roles. for instance, many of these tax havens, and this is what um, the other image on the slide uh, pertains to, um, are simultaneously places for the registration of so-called flags of convenience due to tax advantages, but even more importantly, the absence of regulation when you register in a tax haven country. Over two-thirds of today's global merchant fleet are registered in the Bahamas, in Panama, in Malta, uh, in Liberia, and the like. 
to avoid safety regulations, to avoid taxation, to avoid limitations placed on the nationalities uh, of crews, and uh, importantly, to avoid trade unionization. Lastly, tax havens are often tied to uh, so-called special economic zones. And there again, sort of definitions and, and the uh, particular character that these zones take on vary. Uh, sometimes they're referred to as export processing zones. Sometimes uh, they're referred to simply as free trade zones. Uh, these zones are also uh, notable for the absence of certain taxes that apply sort of throughout the country uh, to which they nominally still pertain. Uh, and they're also notorious and notable for the absence of certain forms of regulation, especially labor and environmental uh, regulation. Probably the most important role uh, that uh, so, so these special economic zones have taken on more recently has been in China uh, since China's opening um, uh, in 1979, uh, uh, especially on the southern uh, Chinese uh, coast uh, in the form of export processing zones. Freeport in the Bahamas, uh, about which I'm going to talk uh, a little more uh, later, is one such example where tax havenry and zoning overlaps, uh, as is Panama, uh, where you have uh, uh, up here on the slide the uh, free zone um, uh, located uh, next to the canal. But as uh, you've learned recently from the Panama Papers, uh, Panama, of course, is also or has been since 1970-71 an important banking center. And Panama was also an important center for the early hedge fund industry. Um, if you wanted to invest in the United States, you went sort of through uh, Panama. In fact, the early expansion of the whole mutual fund and hedge fund industry uh, in these years, from the 19, late 1960s, 70s on, is hard to imagine without uh, tax havens um, uh, sort of um, being there. Besides tax havens uh, and economic zones, tax havens are what is often referred to rather euphemistically as offshore financial centers. This function as nodes in the global financial system also goes back to the 1960s, and it's another reason why this period is so important uh, for the history of havens. During the 1960s and 70s, tax havens became places where banks could do things that regulations at home and the restrictions imposed by the post-World War II Bretton Woods system otherwise prevented them from doing. And for this reason, uh, the British and U.S. governments actively encouraged their banks and multinational corporations to use tax havens to participate in such uh, activities um, uh, and especially um, in certain lending activities. Such activity was incredibly important and central to the expansion of multinational corporations in the 1960s and 70s uh, uh, generally and the rise of foreign direct investment. These are kind of current uh, common stories that we tell about these years, about the importance of multinational corporations and the rise of multinational corporations and so on. But, is, but what is less often emphasized is the ways in which they relied on this architecture uh, of uh, what you can call tax havens, but also uh, uh, sort of generally what, what amounts to much more than just uh, tax havens. This is how Luxembourg uh, and the Bahamas uh, became some of the most important uh, centers um, of the so-called uh, Euro-dollar market. Um, I don't want to go into too much uh, complicated and technical detail here about uh, these markets, but uh, basically 
uh, euro dollars were dollars that were borrowed, lent, or deposited, and so on, outside of the United States, and therefore they were outside uh, of the regulation and the jurisdiction of really any country. And euro dollars, uh, in fact, became the crucial source uh, for funding the activities of multinational corporations. Uh, and it was advantageous to issue euro dollar bonds in tax havens, not just for um, uh, tax advantage reasons they were there, but also for regulatory reasons, for simply the reasons that um, some of these uh, things weren't possible at home, if you want. And this multidimensional nature of tax havens really leads me to think that these sites uh, form a kind of archipelago of legally specific spaces that sell the right to incorporate, uh, to register, or today increasingly even to carry citizenship. In other words, that sell uh, sovereignty in certain ways. So how did tax havens um, spread after World War II? And how um, did they expand so much? Uh, I want to look at an episode um, uh, from not too far away uh, to um, illustrate some of these points. Uh, and I want to look at the new Hebridus, or what is today known as Vanuatu, uh, since attaining independence in, in 1980, to illustrate um, some of these border uh, developments uh, of tax haven history. So here's first uh, the map, um, uh, and then um, a clip uh, from the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, which in 1971 reported on the booming uh, tax haven business uh, uh, in the New Hebrides. So this had been going on uh, for a little bit from the late 1960s, 1970s on, basically, uh, in this uh, island group. Uh, and I'm going to look a little bit at a letter written by the uh, British Prime Minister Harold Wilson uh, uh, in 1974, so a little later after um, the development of the New Hebrides as a tax haven um, had been uh, occurring already for a while. A letter that he wrote to uh, Gough Whitlam um, in uh, July uh, 1974. And in fact, this was the response uh, to uh, a letter that Whitlam had um, addressed to him uh, just a month earlier. And the image here uh, up on the slide shows you part of uh, this letter that Wilson wrote. And if you were to go to the National Archives uh, in um, uh, the United Kingdom, you would find um, the copy there. And if you were to go to Canberra uh, to the National Archives, um, you would probably find the original there, at least if the archivists uh, did their job, which is to be hoped. Um, so what did Wilson uh, uh, write? So Wilson was replying um, uh, to uh, uh, the previous uh, correspondence, and in this initial correspondence, the Australian uh, prime minister had drawn attention to the ongoing growth of tax haven business in the New Hebrides. At the time of this writing in 1974, the New Hebrides were still a joint uh, Franco-British colony or condominium, but it was clear uh, to observers that the tax haven business was occurring under the British, not the French resident governor's watch. Hence, uh, he complains to Wilson and not to the French side. Since 1972, the Australian government had taken steps to make it increasingly difficult for Australians to move money to the islands, but the Australian Prime Premier uh, was still unhappy. So he writes uh, to Bolton, who was at the beginning of his second term uh, as Labour P 
p.m. And Wilson then replies. And so here's some of what he says as an excuse, if you want, uh, in response uh, to the Australians' uh, a complaint about tax havenry in a British dependent uh, territory. So he says, the problem for us in the New Hebrides must also be viewed in the context of the need to promote the territory's economic development. A country without taxes is always apt to become a tax haven. When a country uh, that has few natural resources, it is difficult for this country to prevent uh, this trend without blocking the genuine development which it generates. And then he goes on to explain that economic development might initially, in fact, arise as a side effect uh, of tax haven business, uh, but, that initial, but that eventually it will, quote, be expected to become increasingly important with the result that a worthwhile growth of genuine business activity will occur. And that activity, activity as Wilson stated, would eventually warrant a different kind of legislation Uh, legislative and tax regime and would sort of gradually replace the need for this territory to even be a uh, tax haven and would replace what he calls, quote, the more superficial elements of the finance uh, industry. This is, uh, as he says, what um, they had observed elsewhere and what they hoped would happen in the New Hebrides as well. Note here also that he refers to the finance industry uh, so again, sort of pointing to the much more uh, wide, the much wider dimension of tax havens than just uh, being tax havens. So what Harold Wilson says about genuine uh, economic development that will flourish alongside tax haven business is important for understanding the accommodating attitude uh, of the British and other governments towards havens and especially towards the expansion of havens uh, in this particular period. In both the British and the French Empire the 1930s and 40s really had marked a turning point of sorts in thinking about the economic development of territories that were still colonies at this point. In these years, when the legitimacy of empire and colonial war was increasingly sort of questioned, um, sometimes more openly uh, than in others, but still, uh, economic development and the well-being uh, of colonial citizens were coming to be seen as increasingly uh, important for simply sort of legitimizing the continuation uh, of colonial rule. And this trend only intensified after the Second World War, uh, now fueled by the Cold War uh, in addition. Under the hardening confrontation between the United States and its allies uh, and the Soviet Union, decolonizing countries, countries that were are either already independent or uh, about to become uh, independent were theoretically up for grabs and had to be won over uh, to one camp uh, uh, over the other by each side, if you want. And the colonial and slowly decolonizing world, therefore, uh, were now the recipients of increasing amounts of aid, foreign aid, development aid, uh, as well as other uh, kinds of support. These countries were largely rural with little to match the industrialization that had occurred in the developed world for decades, decades already. And as was the thinking, hunger and poverty were the perfect breeding grounds uh, for communism. Uh, and that's why you wanted uh, to, to, to prevent that. In terms of numbers uh, and, and amounts of aid distributed, the United States um, uh, always um, uh, uh, was, uh, was the largest uh, provider of aid, but countries like Britain and France, uh, and really sort of most 
developed countries all partook in these uh, activities uh, in, in the process. They often set up ministries for development or technical assistance uh, and, and so on. In the discussion about tax havens during the 1960s, there was therefore an ongoing disagreement over which course to steer. The Bank of England in Britain was really mostly concerned with possible violations of of, uh, exchange controls, and it was only when these exchange controls stood to be violated that it grew concerned at all. The England Revenue and the Treasury, uh, on the other hand, were the most vocal opponents of tax havenry. They, of course, had revenue uh, in mind. But the Foreign and, Co- uh, and Commonwealth Office, uh, uh, and um, this is interesting, uh, normally sided fairly strongly with the aspiring uh, tax haven uh, territories. At one point, the Foreign Office accused the Inland Revenue of, quote, looking at this too much from the point of view of the interests of the British government and not sufficiently from the point of view of the interests of the dependent territories themselves. This was a common argument in these exchanges. The obsession with development and the mindset uh, that very much characterized this period, these decades, roughly from the 1940s to the 1970s, is the backdrop against which British support uh, for uh, uh, tax havens um, has to be seen. This is a very specific sort of historical context in in which uh, this is seen as um, legitimate. So Wilson's letter provides um, uh, a glimpse um, as, uh, at this mindset. Um, Wilson's letter also provides a glimpse at how tax havens were actually um, uh, established, how they were actually practically uh, set up. A little bit further on in the same letter, uh, he writes, again as a kind of explanation to his Australian counterpart, The initiative for the kind of legislation which reinforces the attraction of countries like the New Hebrides to the offshore investment industry lies largely with the authorities in the territories themselves, and the extent to which it is open to any UK government to control such legislation in our dependent territories is subject to some constraint. So the first half of the statement where he refers to local initiatives is more or less accurate. The second half of the statement that the UK can't really do anything about this is much more problematic, and um, I'll get to that later. But so the first half uh, uh, of what he's explaining uh, is, in fact, um, how many of these tax haven countries were, in fact, uh, were set up. The most common pattern for territory's path to tax havenry was as follows. Lawyers and accountants teamed up with local elites uh, or they were in fact, or, uh, in fact already part of the local elite in a given uh, territory. And then they got the local colonial administration to pass laws that t- set up a territory as a tax haven, often with the direct involvement of said lawyers uh, and accountants. In the Caribbean, these lawyers came mostly from Britain, uh, from the U.S. and Canada. In the Channel Islands, uh, they were from London. In Liechtenstein and Luxembourg, uh, they were uh, from Switzerland. So this is not a phenomenon that is only um, restricted to the ni- post-1945 period. This is how earlier tax havens um, sort of emerged uh, as well. In the Bahamas, uh, Stafford Sands uh, was one uh, such uh, a figure. 
He was simultaneously uh, the Bahamian Minister of Finance and Tourism and an attorney who later oversaw the registration and management of hundreds of trust uh, companies uh, on these islands. Uh, he was also, uh, for a while during, like, uh, from 2000, early 2000 to um, late 2000, I think he was um, on um, the $10 uh, uh, bill. I didn't quite understand whether that was sort of meant to be ironic or not. I don't think it was, actually. <laughs> Uh, also, uh, as I found out when I searched for an image uh, uh, of him, um, here he is with Hjalmar Schacht, who was uh, the um, president of the sort of Nazi um, uh, central bank from 1933 to 1939. And apparently Hjalmar Schacht, uh, uh, after um, having been found uh, uh, you know, innocent by the uh, Nuremberg Tribunals, uh, embarked on a second career as a development advisor, which I had never heard of. Uh, and it must have been in this context um, that he met uh, Sands, uh, and this is the only image of Sands um, uh, that I uh, could find um, and sort of verify. Anyway, so this was one example of the involvement and the support uh, of local elites with this. In the Bahamas, there was also the notorious so-called Bay Street Boys who uh, ran tax haven-related affairs. The Bay Street Boys were a group of white British economic uh, and political players who regularly met at a club uh, on Bay and Charlotte Streets in Nassau uh, and who also controlled much of the Bahamian uh, government. As one newspaper commented, Bahamas cabinet ministers had, quote, freely and profitable simultaneously pursued their business and political careers uh, at the same time. Bermuda was uh, characterized by a similarly oligarchic and monopolistic position of banks and families. There, the boards uh, of the two only banks um, uh, for a long time jointly accounted for 11 of the 36 members of the House of the Assembly, including the Speaker and Leader of the House, uh, um, leading the Bank of England, sort of commenting on this, to marvel at the, quote, monopoly of business interests and government posts currently concentrated in a few hands and even fewer families. In places where local elites were less directly involved in setting up territories as tax havens, the lawyers, bankers, and accountants who descended on these uh, places from London and elsewhere had even freer hand in actively intervening in the process of drafting uh, regulation and so on. When the Turks and Caicos Islands uh, introduced banking regulation, the Bank of England made sure that the draft bills were shown to Barclays and to other banks already operating in the territory sort of to okay them. In the Cayman Islands, uh, tax haven legislation was introduced in 1963 and 1967 with banking and trust laws. Uh, this was a story that was very much inspired by Bahamian success. Uh, the local governor in the Cayman Islands supported the drafting of new companies and trust laws. Uh, and here, sort of a leading figure uh, behind uh, um, uh, these moves was uh, a man called Vassal Johnson, who became the island's first finance minister in 1968, but also uh, had served the government sort of in various other uh, positions uh, previously. And the British and Canadian lawyers who had arrived uh, in the Cayman Islands in the early 1960s um, played a key role in writing the precise terms of uh, these laws, these two important laws. 
the Cayman law, laws were particularly perfidious because um, they were based on a very close and very smart reading of the wording of Britain's own tax laws. Uh, uh, and uh, the Cayman laws were in fact sort of drafted and chosen. Um, the wording was chosen uh, in a language that uh, sort of would sort of carefully fall um, uh, outside the British laws, but not um, cause too much uh, uh, uproar in London. So passing tax haven, haven legislation was often, um, as I try to lay out, uh, this kind of joint endeavor between local elites and the British uh, colonial administration. As a, as a result, the British government in London was forced to play a permanent game of catch-up with developments in tax havens. And this led to a number of pretty outrageous arrangements in these havens, um, and these examples uh, represent some of the more extreme cases, uh, so extreme, in fact, that even British officials in London often shook their heads in disbelief when they heard what was going on. Uh, and so, so extreme that, in fact, some of these arrangements would have to be renegotiated or abrogated later uh, because they became the subject of strong uh, local protests in some cases. So... One such example uh, concerns uh, Freeport uh, in the Bahamas uh, and was uh, the so-called Hawksbill Creek Agreement. It was the earliest uh, case of intersecting tax haven uh, and development policies uh, occurring um, sort of under the watch um, of uh, uh, British authorities both in the Bahamas uh, and London. In 1954, British authorities in the Bahamas were approached by one Wallace Groves, who was a U.S. citizen and lawyer who promised to carry out far-reaching industrial and infrastructure projects uh, on the island of uh, Grand Bahama. Uh, Wallace Groves was a, a charming character all around. He had spent uh, three years in prison in the 1940s and um, uh, upon his release set sails uh, for the Bahamas. He had been in prison for uh, investment fraud. At one pound per acre, uh, Groves and his associates um, uh, were granted 50,000 acres of crown land, uh, where the American entrepreneur in turn offered to dredge a deep water harbor to become a free port to provide public utilities and to build an airstrip, among other things. The concessions that he demanded as a return for his investments were what made this arrangement unusual. The Grand Bahamas uh, uh, Port Authority uh, controlled by Groves and his associates uh, rather than by the Bahamian government, would run Freeport uh, and would obtain wide-ranging rights to license companies active in the port and to control immigration into the areas. Companies operating under Groves' regime in Freeport were guaranteed exemption for 30 years from income and profits tax, and these uh, exemptions were um, later extended uh, every time they sort of came due including taxes on profits earned outside the colony. Customs duties would be waived for a guaranteed period of 90 years. The notorious Hawksbill Creek Agreement that spelled out these terms was concluded in August 1955, and it was, uh, as one um, uh, observer later remarked, one of the most one-sided agreements ever signed by the British Crown. And just as an aside, Wallace Groves, I had mentioned his prison past, uh, but there's sort of more to that story, um, which I can't go into uh, uh, in this context, but, but it forms part of the, the broader uh, narrative. 
Wallace, Wallace Groves embodies um, sort of another aspect of the history of tax havens, uh, um, and that is the role of organized crime and the mafia in particular, and sort of illicit trade, smuggling, drugs, drug running, uh, and, and all that uh, 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 is connected to that money laundering, um, especially in more recent times also. Another example um, uh, of a rather sort of extreme uh, agreement um, uh, occurred in the late 1960s um, uh, in uh, the British Virgin Islands uh, and Antigua. In the late 1960s, London authorities began to kind of take a slightly uh, more profound interest in tax havens, mostly due to balance of payment problems in this uh, period. So that territories now attempting to turn themselves into havens uh, and needing London's assent faced slightly higher degrees of scrutiny for their plans. One such plan came from uh, a man named Clovis McAlpin, another American who promised development. Under a 1967 agreement between the government of the British Virgin Islands and what was uh, called the Development Corporation of Anagata, which was controlled by McAlpin, uh, the island of Anagata was uh, to be leased to the corporation for 199 years uh, in exchange for building roads and other public utilities. This uh, corporation, as well as all companies licensed by the corporations, um, uh, would be wholly exempt uh, from income and profits tax uh, and estate duties also for 199 years. The corporation was also exempt uh, from paying import duties uh, and uh, uh, duties on plants, equipment, and anything really sort of brought uh, into and onto the island. As the Bank of England commented, McAlpin was in essence offering, quote, annual tribute in return for exclusive rights, which would virtually turn him into the uncrowned king of the islands. Financiers operating under the name of, quote, global risk underwriters. I mean, just the names of some of these um, uh, uh, operators are incredible. Uh, were even more shameless. In 1967, this group approached uh, the government of Antigua with a plan that, quote, involved the virtual takeover of Antigua's satellite island of Barbuda, uh, the proposal, as again a, a British, British official uh, commented, uh, amounted to a pirate, a, f a financial pirate's nest involving setting up a free port, creating an investment bank that would be guaranteed the right to offer numbered accounts free from investigation, a gold refining and trading facility, casinos and gambling, and at least, uh, according to the suspicions harbored by the Ministry of Overseas Development, also trafficking in drugs uh, and arms. But despite all these dubious uh, connections and the nature of the proposal, the Antigua government um, uh, was, quote, tempted by the offer of substantial capital investment in an otherwise poor and barren area. Okay. Do not have time here? Um, so I'm going to go back to Harold Wilson uh, for one last time, and then I promise um, you will never have to encounter him again, at least not uh, from me. So the archival trail uh, surrounding the episode uh, in the New Hebrides uh, ends um, around the mid-1970s, I presume because uh, with the change of government in Australia, there was no longer perhaps a similar concern, but also because tax havens now had somehow become uh, accepted, not just in the dissolving British Empire, 
but in Luxembourg, uh, the Channel Islands, and Switzerland, and Liechtenstein, and so on. And it meant that hex havens and everything associated with them were now really able to flourish and expand, laying the foundation uh, for even greater volumes of funds and flows disappearing into uh, and out from tax havens um, as of the 1970s. Despite criticism of these rather extreme solutions um, uh, arrived at, at the periphery, uh, conflicts and different views among British authorities tended to be resolved in favor of development and therefore in favor of tax havens. Agreements like the Hawkesburg Creek Agreement were therefore indicative of the spirit uh, behind what was going on here, a spirit that in some ways prefigured what would uh, become official government policy in many countries in the 1980s with the rise of neoliberalism. In certain ways, places such as the Bahamas, the Caymans, but also Luxembourg and the Channel Islands were later lauded as laboratories for unfettered laissez-faire capitalism. And some of the practices especially different forms of deregulation that were sort of experimented with in tax havens and similar places later were emulated and re-imported uh, to Europe and North America as part of the rise of neoliberal policies uh, there from the 1980s on. Okay. So what has been done in the past um, to uh, combat this kind of thing more uh, efficiently if the British government and other governments um, uh, have been uh, rather supportive uh, than sort of uh, uh, critical? The first attempts to really address the problem uh, of tax evasion um, uh, sort of on a more systematic and sustained uh, basis um, uh, emanates uh, from the League of Nations, the predecessor organization to the United Nations. In the early 1920s, the League and its economic and financial organization began a series of inquiries into the problem of allocating business profits uh, among different tax jurisdictions. Um, if you want, the sort of pre-World War I world had been fairly globalized already, and enterprises were headquartered in one country, but producing a production took place in another, potentially meaning that uh, such enterprises would be taxed in more than one uh, location, uh, but also potentially, obviously, opening the door to evasion. So throughout the interwar period, the League and the Economic financial, uh, and Financial Organization devoted considerable attention to the problem of what is uh, still referred to today as double taxation. Uh, and it issued several reports, it held several com conferences, um, uh, uh, and as part of its general sort of effort to promote world trade and to um, promote open door policies, uh, uh, sort of made double taxation agreements um, a major uh, part of its work. The League also uh, was one of the first um, uh, sort of coordinated multilateral, uh, uh, launched one of the first coordinated multilateral efforts to try to get its member states um, to agree on exchanging information on suspected uh, evaders. Very important if you think about sort of contemporary debates. Um, uh, that proposal um, basically sort of the proposal to lift banking secrecy at least a little bit, not to fully get rid of it, but to lift it a little bit. That proposal was struck down um, at the behest of the Swiss Federation of Bankers and the British Association of Bankers and the International Chamber of Commerce, in other words, um, some of the most powerful lobbyist organizations uh, for private banking interests um, 
in the period. Um, these private uh, lobby, lobbying organizations were very much involved with the League of Nations work. Um, they always sat at the table, always attended the, the conferences, uh, and so on. The OECD uh, and the uh, what was then called so the European Economic Community um, took up these efforts that uh, had been uh, launched by the League of Nations in the 1960s and 70s, uh, and now referred um, to uh, to some of these issues as uh, uh, what is called harmful tax competition, which is a term that is still um, also very much uh, in use. But overall, these uh, multilateral efforts um, uh, amounted uh, to not so much, not least because countries like uh, Switzerland, um, as a OECD member, and also the United States, who um, sort of bear features of tax havens themselves, uh, at times simply blocked uh, more uh, profound attempts uh, at reform. That didn't prevent some of these countries um, to uh, set up um, uh, sort of a, a different attempt to deal with tax evasions. Um, the so-called Group of Four, uh, often, often also referred to as Interfisc, the Group of Four was basically an effort um, to circumvent some of the multilateral uh, activities that were going on at the OECD and elsewhere, and it involved sort of mid-level treasury efforts, uh, tre treasury officials um, from different revenue authorities in the United States, in uh, Britain, in Germany, and France, who met uh, normally twice a year, uh, and who exchange information on ongoing tax investigation, especially of multinational corporations operating um, in their territories. Uh, one big um, uh, uh, target was always the pharma industry, simply because um, it was so multinational. So uh, uh, a uh, enterprise like Hoffman La Roche, um, sort of simultaneously uh, registered and active um, in, in, in several European countries and the United States always found itself um, under investigation by this group. Uh, the entertainment industry, uh, and not least uh, Mick Jagger and Brigitte Bardot, uh, and I'm always happy um, uh, to talk at least a little bit about the work of the group before because it allows me to make the topic of talk of taxes seem a little more glamorous uh, than um, uh, it could always uh, it could could otherwise uh, seem. Uh, neither Brigitte Bardot nor Mick Jagger ever actually um, uh, 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 sort of faced more serious accusations, at least from this group. But still, so. Multilateral efforts uh, and then these informal um, uh, meetings of the group of four um, uh, in, in many ways sort of prefigured uh, the efforts that we hear about today by the OECD, by the European Union, and also um, sort of by the United States trying to get other countries to exchange information, uh, uh, for instance, of, about the bank accounts of U.S. citizens um, in other countries, uh, and so on. So much of the talk that we hear today uh, has been kind of tried um, in different uh, ways already. So it is questionable um, what will come of these efforts. Uh, not least uh, because, uh, at least sort of in my assessment, um, at the end of the day, uh, it depends on um, governments exercising their sovereign power uh, over some of the countries under concern, uh, and more so than they are currently doing. So there's much more an issue of unwillingness to act than there is an issue of inability to act. 
It's simply not credible that Britain could not move more decisively against dependent territories like the British Virgin Islands and the Cayman Islands. And of course, as I already mentioned, Switzerland and the United States uh, uh, sort of are both uh, part of the problem. Uh, in fact, uh, Gabriel Zuckman, the Berkeley economist whom I mentioned um, initially, uh, is highly critical uh, of Switzerland and goes so far as to um, recommend uh, uh, sanctions of, of some sort, uh, in this case sort of tariffs on Swiss exports to major European countries. These are all uh, possibilities. But, uh, and um, so if this is what I uh, uh, will close with, um, there's another dimension, uh, uh, which sort of is part of um, what you could uh, characterize as a whites, widespread, very professional avoidance industry that I mentioned also initially. This avoidance industry um, uh, consists, A, of uh, individuals, uh, who turn out uh, to have been extremely central for the spread of some of the ideas and institutions that you can associate with tax evasion. And it consists B, of uh, a host of sort of um, uh, publications and fora uh, through which tax avoidance is advertised. But first to the, some of the individuals. The more archival research I do and, and the way in which I um, work on this project is basically I go to different national archives uh, of the countries um, sort of most involved in this, so Britain, the United States, France, uh, uh, Germany, uh, uh, and then punctually uh, maybe a country like Ireland and eventually um, some of the tax haven countries. But then I also look at bank archives. I look at the archives of uh, uh, some of the um, uh, international organizations involved with these um, anti-avoidance efforts. Um, uh, uh, so it's a mi mix of different actors. And what I've found over the last years um, when uh, sort of going through these archives is there are a number of individuals who pop up in different locations and uh, turn out to have been extremely important um, as, as characters in, in, in this game. So up here on the slide, you see Martin Dale, who was uh, initially uh, the American... A consular representative in, uh, in, uh, in Nice in, in southern France and was hired from there um, to basically help uh, Renier first, uh, uh, the, uh, sort of in, in Monaco to set up Monaco as a tax haven. And he was uh, basically sort of the liaison between uh, Monaco and uh, American multinational corporations who were among the first um, to incorporate and register there in the 1950s and 60s. Martin Dale has this very glossy shot here, uh, much glossier than some of the others, because uh, a, a fellowship at Princeton University from which he graduated is still uh, named for him. So Princeton University's website um, features this very nice shot. Um, Next to uh, Martin Dale, um, I couldn't find uh, images of, of, of the, the figures in particular, but Arthur D. Little, the um, Boston-based uh, consulting company, um, uh, sort of had three uh, 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 consecutive heads, leaders, who uh, basically spread the concept of export processing zones um, uh, to the developing world. Um, and who were sort of majorly involved with uh, setting up free zones in places like Puerto Rico and Panama uh, 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 and so on. Uh, Brendan O'Regan, up here, drinking obviously Guinness, um, 
was uh, uh, the man who set up the Shannon Free Zone, but who then, uh, in co coordination with um, uh, different United Nations organizations, held seminars about how to set up export processing zones uh, for developing countries. And he was uh, instrumental in spreading this concept to Egypt, uh, to Taiwan, and South Korea in the 1960s uh, and 70s. And you have Colin Powell, who I met uh, at the beginning of July in, in, in Jersey, uh, in the Channel Islands, um, who single-handedly uh, was sort of dispatched um, uh, uh, to um, uh, Jersey in the late 1960s, initially to just simply help Jersey uh, basically beef up its development efforts, but who turned, again, sort of his development work there in advocacy for um, uh, turning Jersey into a sort of much more professional and specialized tax havens um, than, than it initially had been. This is Marshall uh, Langer, uh, who uh, uh, is an, uh, or was for a while an adjunct professor at the University of Miami, uh, uh, but also a tax uh, lawyer, um, uh, and he uh, is the author of um, some of the most influential publications who sort of pop up um, in different archives over and over again, brochures, little booklets, um, which inform uh, you know, people potentially interested in tax evasions about the opportunities uh, and so on. And then there's Milton Grundy, uh, who is uh, uh, a practicing barrister still, must be um, uh, quite advanced in years uh, now, who um, not only uh, uh, ran some of the um, sort of trust uh, companies in the Bahamas, but was also rumored to have actually sort of been one of the lawyers who wrote the Cayman Islands <clears throat> trust law that set the country up as a tax haven, and who uh, later went on to found the International Association of Tax Planners, which again is basically sort of a euphemism for uh, tax avoidance um, and evasion. So there are a number of figures who are interesting um, and who help spread these ideas and in institutions. And without uh, sort of their work, uh, this wouldn't have uh, been um, uh, uh, possible. And then, so the last thing I'm going to briefly mention is uh, simply the, um, the sort of publication, book-led, informal uh, literature industry that has emerged alongside this. And these are early in, uh, examples, and you can sort of imagine this whole problem and that sort of whole aspect of, of, of tax avoidance just sprawling out of control with the Internet in more recent times. So here we are still in the 1960s and 70s in the age uh, of print, uh, but even at this point, you see the banker, sort of a professional magazine directed at uh, members of, of the industry, um, regularly featured uh, overviews of the most, rel uh, most, re most recent developments in tax havens, sort of giving, you know, kind of bridging uh, the, bridging just providing information with giving actual advice uh, for uh, avoidance. Advertising. Um, the Financial Times um, uh, uh, in sort of the respective uh, uh, sections contains, uh, you know, every day basically throughout the 1960s and 70s some advertising for uh, tax havens, often even much, much more sort of lavishly colored and illustrated um, than uh, just this example. Here's one uh, that features um, an Australian bank's uh, uh, offers uh, in the New Hebrides, and then there was a, a, an amount of kind of gray literature, um, in this case, uh, the Tax Haven re Review that had been um, uh, 
founded uh, by someone who uh, mailed it to European clients out of a secret location in Denmark. The British authorities at some point tried to find out where he was actually located. They couldn't. Uh, and they did get hold uh, of, of the tax review or of some copies of it. And apparently when you received the tax review, um, uh, the envelope would not sort of give away the contents of what, what you were, what you were get, getting so to, as to not basically create um, any, any problems for the recipients of such um, uh, advertisements. Okay, so in order, uh, so sort of, you know, to, 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 um, to move against uh, tax havens, you would have to not only um, count on um, countries' willingness to really sort of uh, exert their sovereign power uh, more in more determined ways, but also you would have to move against um, this avoidance industry, which of course also consists of the major law firms, of major accounting firms, uh, all big accounting firms, like the big names in the industry today, are all massively represented uh, and active in different uh, uh, tax havens. PricewaterhouseCoopers, a sort of Luxembourg um, office, employs uh, a staff of 2,300. And someone has done the math. Um, that would be uh, uh, one accountant in every 240 uh, Luxembourgians, basically. That's a lot. Okay, so I want to just briefly uh, conclude with a few remarks about um, the nature uh, of these activities and what that tells us uh, about capitalism and, and the state. I very much uh, uh, think it is necessary to see these developments not as sort of uh, uh, exceptions um, uh, and, um, yeah, uh, so sort of deviations from the rule, but rather as part of uh, this state-based, nation-state-based order um, that dominates um, this part of the 20th century, uh, not as uh, aberrations. Um, also, you could argue that this form of rent-seeking um, uh, is part of democratic uh, capitalism, is sort of an inbuilt feature uh, of democratic uh, capitalism. Uh, and of course, that... Um, sort of necessarily should make us think about generally the possibilities of regulation and um, uh, what to do with uh, a capitalism and in what ways uh, is it possible to, um, to sort of regulate such things if the immediate consequence is um, uh, a move uh, to, to tax havens, for, for instance. Um, and with that, I think I will close. Oh, hi, Vanessa. I really enjoyed the talk. Um, um, I want to ask, I guess maybe it's a particular question, but I wanted to go back to this idea of um, the relationship between tax havens and development, and particularly how you're using development at the, end of, at the end of empire and the age of decolonization. To what extent did the Treasury Department think that tax havens were something that could be taken to countries like Jamaica instead of the Cayman Islands or to Kenya instead of um, the Seychelles? Or was it something that is tied to these countries that we maintain a kind of, for lack of a better word, settler um, control, or, or countries that have very small populations. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, so, um, I mean, they did, they did think about extending some of the facets and some of the aspects of this, um, even to places that look kind of very different. 
the reason why these solutions were so um, you know feasible in these particular places has more to do with the general obsession with natural resources. That term and sort of the concept of natural resource-based growth and industrialization is really what, what drives this. And to be fair, I mean, natural resources in this sense is what these places precisely uh, don't have. So the argument was, well, if you're you know, in this situation, if you don't have these kind of um, extractive natural resources, ideally, to build an industry upon, um, then maybe you should allow you should be allowed to become uh, a tax haven. Okay. Um, thank you. I really really enjoyed this talk. And one of the things that I really liked about this talk was that um, it kind of pushes the chronology of um, just thinking about neoliberalism or taxation um, and and kind of pushing it to 1945 onwards and even before that. But looking at this period, one of the things that I liked that you you were saying was uh, that it basically through tax havens, um, the, um, the British or the Americans started selling sovereignty. And I was wondering if you can expand a little bit, maybe, or if you have bits of it, about the notion of citizenship. Because mm. one of the things that I don't know if you've read is a really good book that came out uh, called The Cosmopolites. Uh, basically, so like if you have a tax haven that has all of these kind of exemptions, not only from taxation, but also from immigration, and this period is really from Britain at least. It's a period where a lot of immigration laws are being created, so a lot of movement of people from the Commonwealth, are, you know, mm. by the end of the 60s, um, it's, it's being severed. So I'm wondering if there's basically a creation of um, buying passports or of, of migration and movement outwards. Um, yep, yeah, sure. No. <laughs> I also wanted to um, ask you to elaborate more on this idea of selling sovereignty, Vanessa, which I found um, really interesting, and in particular whether it had anything to do with the kind of new interest that we have in the histories of chartered companies, for example, and particularly in the very late, if you will, um, arrival of our distinction between public and private, right? Something that we think of as very naturalised today and very connected to ideas of sovereignty, but all this new work is exploring just how late that division emerges, and perhaps given... Um, new developments since uh, Second World War, how quickly it's receded. So that, that moment in which the public um, might be very connected to sovereignty but actually turned out to be very brief. And I just wondered if you see your history here as, as part of that kind of story or if it's quite separate. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so the selling of sovereignty or the commodification and commercialization of sovereignty, I mean, these are sort of interests... Um, that emerged out of like the more and more I, I, I read, uh, but it is something I haven't fully wrapped my uh, head around yet. So I'm trying to kind of fit this into a broader, both chronology but also uh, argument. But it is there, and I, I know and like the book that you mentioned uh, very much. And I, so there, there is a link uh, between this and, and sort of what I'm looking at, not so much though in, in, in the way. Uh, you asked, so I haven't found um, any evidence of the kind of, uh, you know, sort of um, buying or selling citizenship or any sort of link to the immigration that was definitely going on from, like, the colonies home and, and sort of the movements uh, in this sense. What you do find sort of on the legal level, of course, is that many, um, many legal systems um, still... Uh, 
and today even, consider sort of corporations basically like persons. And so corporate residency and corporate citizenship uh, are often used um, synonymously and um, sort of interchangeably. So when some people are talking about the registration of companies, they could just as well be talking about a corporate citizenship. So there is a link between, if you want, um, citizenship and, and corporate residency and registration. Uh, uh, and I would say that sort of what uh, the book that you refer to describes is sort of the very modern contemporary extension of some of the things um, that uh, happen when I'm kind of more closely uh, looking. But it, it seems to be, to me, a more recent development. Just to expand on that, if, if somebody from a company uh, that is on this taxi committed some kind of a felony, let's say murdered somebody, raped somebody, whatever, what, what kind of... Um, that I mean that is sort of something that doesn't really appear in the, in the kinds of sources that I'm looking at. I mean you can sort of imagine all kinds of arrangements if you think about uh, extraterritoriality. Uh, I'm not sure um, how much sort of you know extraterritorial, extraterritorial court systems operated in these places that would have given. Um, foreigners special legal treatment as we know this from the Ottoman Empire or in certain cases uh, China sort of during the age of empires still but that's an interesting question I should look at more and in response to uh, to Natasha's question um, I have to think about that more because I haven't thought about it um, in, in, in this uh, in, in this sort of context of sovereignty, the distinction between private and public, um, where I see, you know, sort of a much more muddied uh, uh, and blurred um, distinction between public and private is in the in, in, in sort of the realm of development. Um, so all these corporations, the development authority of such and such, the development corporation of such and such, were extreme were, were sort of not this, this, the public enterprises or the state ran, run enterprises um, that we sort of can imagine them to be. They were much closer to the private sector uh, and they were always uh, sort of trying to promote you know, market-based solutions as part of development much more, I think, than the historiography uh, of development has properly kind of taken into account. Um, so that that's where I so I can relate to your point, but I have to think more about um, uh, the, the dimension of sovereignty in particular. Um, thanks for a wonderful talk, Vanessa. I just have a very general question. Um, if you found, um, what would be the sort of relationship between these havens and, um, say, the city of London and, the, and financial districts within sovereign spaces, but that are nonetheless perhaps governed um, in certain exceptional ways starting in the 60s and 70s. And I mean, I know I read something once about how um, how the British government saw the city of London as a financial center in the aftermath of empire much earlier than the 1980s as a really important uh, center. And so what's the sort of chronological or spatial relationship between those things? Thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, so there is, a, I think, a tempting argument to make about, you know, um, your dollars and tax havens basically being a way to make up for the loss of empire, especially for the city of London. Um, I, would, I would sort of be sympathetic to that kind of argument, but I don't find as much evidence as I actually suspected I would for this. Um, 
the city of London uh, basically um, sort of, uh, you know, sort of doesn't kind of nostalgically uh, uh, think about this so much in terms of power, but um, more as a legal problem. Uh, so, in a way, tax ha- and, and the city of London in this case includes not just bankers but also accountants and lawyers uh, very much. Uh, in, in a legal sense, tax havens basically um, sort of prolonged uh, the natural unevenness, the legal heterogeneity of the world of empires from the late 19th century. Uh, so the fact that you know certain parts of the British empires had you know, had such you had company and bank laws operating. Others you had not. Uh, certain colonies uh, would levy such taxes. Others would not. That kind of heterogeneity is precisely what tax havens uh, and simply different tax rates as applied in different countries today emulate in a certain way. Uh, and the City of London saw when sort of uh, pensioners, especially of the civil service, uh, returned from different colonies, from empire, with the beginning of decolonization, the city of London sees this as an opportunity. And Jersey, for instance, in the late 1960s, makes uh, sort of offering accounts and tax evasion schemes to former colonial officials one of its main kind of specialized, if you want, uh, uh, functions and and offers um, it has to do. Yeah, thanks, Vanessa. That was really good. It's probably linking into what Natasha was saying about the public-private thing, but these capitalists on the margins, did they ever make a statement about being wanting to replace development uh, or replace social and economic rights with development? Because I know you were focusing on the post-war period mm-hmm. and there was that period when social and economic rights were on the agenda and there was a clue as well with the League of Nations... So you'd mentioned that that was sort of like a, a prototype, a period where something was happening around that and then something after the war. And then all of a sudden, development and the concept of development comes in. And I'm wondering whether that was, there was any evidence of like a, a conscious intellectual discourse about we don't need social and economic rights, we've got development. Oh, OK, interesting. Um, oops, sorry. Uh, no, um, I mean, for them, probably sort of the prospect, uh, you know, as you allude, of development, uh, you know, sort of was something they had to offer that was much better than social and economic rights. But um, I don't find that sort of explicitly addressed. But it might be because um, the actors and the sources I'm looking at would not be the place where I would find this. Uh, uh, It might be that this is something that, you know, sort of, is debated, for instance, more in um, different fora of international organizations at the time, not so much um, amongst of, like colonial administrations in the colony or bankers or something like that. Okay, I think one last question, just up the back. Um, my apologies if you've covered this earlier. For some reason, I misread the start time. Um, it may not be central to your work, but I'd be interested to know your response to the way the so-called Panama Papers have been presented and whose interests are being served with that um, dominant presentation. A a Panamanian colleague uh, named Julio Hial, who's a political scientist, has been sending me some articles that are 
getting rather wide coverage of his around Latin America in particular, um, which begin with an interrogation of why it is the Mossack Fonseca papers become known as the Panama Papers and why, by comparison, the Watergate scandal didn't become known as the US scandal or why uh, the Pentagon Papers weren't known as the US Papers. And he traces a, a line of uh, neo-colonial thinking and points out that um, the whole enterprise of the so-called Panama Papers has the political motivation of trying to scare investors back to the big tax havens like the United States itself. He even produces what, what is reasonable evidence, I suspect, of uh, Pentagon involvement in the establishment of this so-called international group of investigative journalists, I think they're called. Oh, right, yeah. I wonder how you might respond uh, to those kinds of uh, theories. Yeah, sure. I mean, I haven't seen um, sort of that kind of evidence uh, for, you know, so such allegations, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical um, about uh, sort of directly commenting on, on that aspect. But, um, I mean, obviously, you know, the United States and Switzerland, uh, as, as I've mentioned uh, at least twice, um, are a big part of the problem. Uh, and you're right uh, uh, to basically say, you know, it's much easier to point fingers at a place like Panama and sort of brand and name it uh, like that than to point fingers at uh, uh, the United States uh, uh, and even Switzerland. Um, with that, I, I very much agree. Uh, I, would, I would sort of add perhaps a, a slightly different aspect. Um, I mean, I wasn't surprised uh, by this at all simply because this one law firm uh, just, you know, is a, is a drop in the ocean. There are just so many like that, um, not just in Panama, but all over the place. Uh, and it just happened to be uh, that, you know, someone at this law firm in Panama leaked the papers. It could have happened in a number of other places, and it would look extremely similar, perhaps with a slightly different sort of regional distribution of the people who made use uh, of this but still, you would find uh, the you know exact same thing in, in many other places, and there are countless uh, firms like this. Uh, so this uh, sort of whole side of it um, didn't surprise me at all, and it is not something that you would have to attach uh, to Panama in, in particular. I would say. Okay, on that point, we've made you work hard enough. And I think this is uh, this lecture has shown us that this is a discussion debate that we're going to continue having, and um, Vanessa's talk has just reinforced the significance of history for understanding that debate and taking us deeper into it. So thank you very much. Thank you.